Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show, Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show. It's a Sunday, and 2 o'clock is when we step in front of the microphone, and we do this every Sunday. We love you to join us. We have great guests and we explore this city and the neighboring areas. We tell you what's happening, what's good to go to, whether it's a hot Broadway show or it's an apple picking place that you may not have known about. We like to share all of our information with you. Particularly interesting guest this week Every week they're good. But actor Aaron Neal, who plays a very important role in Leopoldstadt, the Tom Stoppard play, which I have to tell you is, I know Broadway's expensive. And for a lot of people who don't live in the middle of Manhattan, it's a pain in the neck to get in the car and drive and park. But this play is one of the most important plays on Broadway right now, and he's one of our most valued writers. And this is a new play for Tom on Broadway. It is so real, so touching, so heartbreaking. It takes place, it's called Leopoldstadt, and it takes place in Vienna. And when I asked about what that title was based on, it, it's from the name of a Jewish quarter, which the play actually doesn't take place in the Jewish quarter. It opens in this grand living room in the middle of one of the best sections of Vienna, and it starts in 1899, and it follows a family who is totally integrated into the good life of Vienna. Beautiful homes, important people, major jobs, totally accepted in society. And this play follows the family, the children, the grandchildren over its two hours. And in a way, it could be the playwright, Tom Stoppard's story, his history, and those who surrounded him. Tom Stoppard had a very strong Jewish history and never paid a lot of attention to it. And this play, to those of us watching, is his way of dealing with it and the anguish that comes along with such a story. I thought it was amazing. And as you, when you go to see it, are going to discover, you know when a play has a real impact on you and the curtain comes down in the end 
And often with big musicals, the audience stands up, they yell, they cheer. This play was so intense and so moving and so frightening in many ways with what's going on now. The timing is impeccable that when the curtain came down, the audience sat. And the performances were extraordinary. But I felt that we couldn't get up. It was too intense. And then as we slowly walked out of the theater, I went with a, a friend who's a real theater buff. We had to stop and get, not a drink, it was too early, get a coffee, a tea, but we had to let it digest. And we had to start re-examining what we had just seen and talking about the coincidence of what happened in 1899 and what went on for the next 50 years, believe it or not, in this play, and how close this play is to what's going on in our country right now, in our country, in our city, in our lives. This is a play, it's at the Longacre Theater, that you definitely want to see. And I can't wait to introduce you to one of the stars, Aaron Neal. And then because we all need a little laughter and a little light, Guess who's coming? My radio husband, the one and only Arthur Schwartz. And he's coming on today too. And we're going to look at people who change their lives in midstream and follow a dream. It's all possible. And you're all possible. And I love that you're a part of our audience. And I'm inviting you to join us Sundays at 2 o'clock. And I'm Joan Hamburg. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats. Last week, I told you about turkeys sold directly from farmers in our area. Now, I want to tell you where you can find really delicious turkeys, smoked and honey-baked turkeys and hams. I can tell you who will send them right to your front door. They save time and oven space for Thanksgiving. I have a little wall oven and a real oven. So the wall oven, which had been with me for like 30, 40 years, broke. And no one could fix it. And it was very hard finding something that fit in that spot. So I always made a small turkey or a turkey breast in the small oven and a great big one in the big oven, but I can't do that now. So I paid a lot of attention to whether or not a mail-order turkey or ham is really good and if it's worth it. Let me give you a couple of choices. Nuskies, N-U-E-S-K-E-S, Wittenberg, Wisconsin, 800-382-2266, Newskies.com. They've been doing it since 1933. They specialize in applewood smoked meats. They have really good bacon, ham, sausage, poultry. And for Thanksgiving, 
They have a smoked whole turkey, which is very tasty, juicy and moist and flavorful. You can heat them up. I like to heat them, I'm telling you. Some people just let it go to room temperature. And a nine-pound whole turkey smoked is $89, 11 pounds, 99. And they have turkey breasts starting at forty-five ninety-nine, or a honey glaze one, fifty-nine ninety-nine. They have a lot of good stuff. For the best shipping prices, try to place your order before November 20th. Here's the deal, 800-382-2266, or go to newskis.com. And out of California, Missouri, Burgers, B-U-R-G-E-R-S, has a really good smokehouse. I have had their smoked ham. My neighbor out on the East End orders this all the time, and I promise you it is delicious. And the founder of the company learned from generations past how to cure the perfect ham. They still do smokehouse stuff. The third and fourth generation is running it. They take whole turkeys, they smoke them, takes them a week, and they slow cook. They have a simple brine. It's really good. And they have free shipping for all turkeys that are taken at that right time. And check the prices, too, because it's an excellent product. And I have been using the Honey Baked Ham Company forever. Go to honeybake.com, 800-367-2426. That goes back to 1957. They have hundreds of locations. They do this spiral-sliced honey ham with a sweet and crunchy glaze. They do the same thing on a turkey and a turkey breast before November 18th to assure on time for Thanksgiving. They arrive frozen, and they're ready to serve after thawing. They're really good. And after you thaw, the turkey will stay fresh for five to seven days in the fridge. And we really liked it. So go online, honeybaked.com, or call 800-367-2426. Can make your mouth water. Check them out. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Well, it's a very exciting day in Hamburg land because my radio husband of many years is with me. And I can't keep up with Arthur. He's First of all, cooking up a storm is the word running throughout Brooklyn. People want to move to be near him so they don't miss lunch or dinner. Breakfast is another story. I actually don't know if my radio husband eats breakfast, but we'll find out. But the one and only Arthur Schwartz, truly one of the outstanding food people in the country, former restaurant critic, Arthur has done and is doing. Yes. I'll do it. I I was, for a thousand years, the oldest, uh, the second oldest living restaurant critic in in America. 
Uh, Gail Green just died last week or yeah. earlier this week, I should say. And so now I'm the oldest living uh, restaurant critic and longest running. But I also was the editor of the food section of the Daily Newsman when it had a really like a weekly food magazine. And I'm now I'm going to flash. I, I've written seven cookbooks. Um, I'll get to that in a second. And I am now on an NPR affiliate uh, called Robin Hood Radio. And you can listen to me by going to RobinHoodRadio.com and listen on demand. So about my cookbook. So, I, I, you know, Joan, I cook every day. Not every day. But a lot. Five out of seven days. We have at least one, if not two, home-cooked meals. I just made lunch, in fact. I, I just made a pot of, only because I needed to use up some stuff in the so fridge. So what do you make? I made a, I made the base for a broccoli, cream of broccoli soup. When I get off with you, I'm going to puree it and add some cream, and that'll be lunch today. It's a, that's wow. a light lunch for us, actually. So, um, but Bob how, probably, let me what? ask you, how do you decide when you cook like that? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was a big deal, like, what am I going to make for dinner? Always a big deal. I'm Joan. sick of it's the same deal. old thing. Well, how do you decide? Well, that's it. I'm, I, you know, I do get, I do get. Let's say I'm sick, but I do get bored with my own food, uh, and I venture out. And then sometimes I'm, oh, I'm going to add that to my repertoire, uh, like a dish I made the other day. But uh, most of the time, I say, you know, I better go back to my own recipes. And after seven cookbooks, I have a lot to draw on. Plus, there's all the unpublished stuff in my computer. And I made, I was into baking a few weeks ago. So I made a cake that, it's called the Impossible Cake. And you know what? It was impossible. It came out terrible. What was it? I'll tell you. It's a funny thing. It's it's, it's, apparently it's going around. It you it it comes out. You bake it in a bun pan, and it becomes half a chocolate cake. And half of a, a flan, F L A N flan, you know, custard. I make that. In fact, I just bought. You this. make that 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 this impossible cake. No, I make the, the flan. flan all the ah, time. Well, so that's it. So the flan was delicious, but the rest of it was disgusting, and I ended up throwing it out. Why? So after we ate off the the top layer of flan, which now became the bottom layer of flan. Uh-huh. Anyway, and then I made another cake that I thought, oh, this is this sounds really good. And you know what? That wasn't so good either. So in the end, I, I said, you know, I really need cake. So I, I made my own apple cake that's in um, Jewish home cooking, how which was I knew it? was exactly how it was going to turn out. So anyway, I do use a lot of my I, I do cook my own food, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, I do get a little restless. bored and I have to venture out. And then do you rely on recipes that aren't yours or no? Well, you know, I do. And, you know, I know I have some reliable sources. For instance, if I'm making something uh, Roman or even Sicilian because she goes to two places, I turn to Rachel Roddy, R-O-D-D-Y. Rachel, who I have had a few lunches with when I'm in Rome. She lives in, she's an English woman who lives in Rome and who is partnered with a Sicilian rock musician. Well, that's and a she good had, The way Here's the best story, Joan. She had, uh, uh, she had the Sicilian boyfriend many years ago. They broke up. And while they were broken up, she had an affair with somebody else. And she had the baby with somebody else. Aha. Uh-huh. And 
this Sicilian is so 21st century <laughs> that he is now parenting the the, the son of her former uh, oh boyfriend. Oh, gosh, only you. Well, anyway, Rachel is the food columnist for The Guardian, the English newspaper. And you can you can read all her stuff online because The Guardian posts her column every week. Mm. And it's also archived. But she's written two cookbooks. Um, and I have both of them. And the reason I have both of them, and let's start with the first one, which is called My Kitchen in Rome. And when that first came out, I wasn't reviewing cookbooks anymore, but I asked my cousin Erica, who was, did you get anything this year that really impressed you? And she handed me this book, and it was beautiful. And not only beautiful, with sort of real pictures, not staged uh -huh. pictures, but I look at the, the, you know, I always do this. I look at the recipes I know and see how she did them. And I, it was like how I did them. So I thought, oh, I, whatever I don't know, she's going to, she, it's going to be good too. Anyway, and they are. And then after she uh, wrote that, um, she spend, she now spends summers in, in Gelo, which is a town in southern Sicily, which is where her, they may be married by now, where her, uh, anyway, her, her partner. partner is from. And so the latest book is called Two Kitchens. That's it. So her kitchen in Rome and her kitchen. And she lives in a Testaccio uh, in Rome, which used to be like a working class uh, community. But these days, it's, I don't know, in a way, it's sort of like the park slope of Rome. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's funny. Anyway, so, I, yeah, I turned to Rachel Roddy. And cook. Sometimes, yeah, and when I'm, it depends on what I'm cooking. I, I uh, uh, for Jewishy stuff, uh, I have my own cookbook. And I, uh, by the way, I just we we hadn't eaten carbohydrates really for almost two years, and now we're off of the keto diet, and we're eating like normal people. Was that a good diet for you? Well, guys? I lost fifty pounds, and Bob no. lost twenty-five pounds. Yeah. I can't believe it. How long were you on that diet? Well, I was on it for a very long time. Because besides that, I lost weight uh, because I was not eating any wheat products. Uh, my arthritis got better. Isn't that amazing? And also, my blood sugar is like normal, even though I'm wow. diabetic, and I take I take a medication, but uh, but I have very very low A1C. It's even oh, lower great. than Bob's, who's not diabetic. What? Uh, that's unbelievable. Well, it's not unbelievable. That's what the diet is for. So you had no but pasta or any I had of your... For two years, Joan. Oh, are Not only that, I gave it away. I mean, I had like enough pasta in my cupboard to oh. open a store. I can imagine. <laughs> I ended up giving it all to my housekeeper mm -hmm. because I didn't even want it in the house. Um, and I, I, I'm not... And, but I'm eating other carbs. So I, I was about to say... Uh, I, I was craving, this is a funny thing to crave, but I have funny cravings. Kasha varnishkis. Oh, my gosh. I, you know how many I won't even tell you. I don't think I've had it since I was a child. Oh, come on. No. I don't. Well, I, I didn't have I it. Well, I love it, and I make it frequent. I used to make it frequently. I grew up eating kasha. Um, you know, I had uh, Russian, I should say grandparents of Belarus, uh, descent, because at least my grandmother was born in Brooklyn. But we 
we ate kasha. And and then my grandmother would make, and my mother too, would make kasha all the time to go with pot roast or, you know, on a holiday brisket, mm-hmm. unless it was Passover. And um, and then we would eat the the juices and the onions from the pot roast, the gravy, on top of the kasha. Only on special occasions did my mother and grandmother make kasha varnishkis, which refers to the varnishkis part, That's... refers to bow tie pasta. Um, or egg noodle, actually. Right. Tell what that one is. It's got the so, kasha, see, the noodles. Pardon me? Tell, explain what that is. Well, bow ties, you know, uh-huh. like bow Italian bow ties, farfalle uh-huh. in Italian. But we call, you know, in English, we say bow tie pasta. And the bow ties, uh, uh, actually, it's a pinched flat, it's a flat, you know, the bow ties are a, a ribbon of pasta that's been pinched in the middle. And what I love about them and I must say I'm into them lately, is that they they provide two textures in one bite. You get both a, a slightly al dente, where it's all pinched together, and the softer, where it's the, the wings, so to speak, of the butterfly. Anyway, so you mix a kasha. Let me quickly, I'm going to quickly give you a recipe. Okay. He, all right. One, you, the thing about kasha is it clumps together unless you do this pr- uh, uh, preliminary thing, which is to beat up an egg. And uh, stir in one cup of kasha. I do this right in the pot that I'm going to cook the kasha in, which is a you know saucepan, um, three quart saucepan, let's say. And you can buy that anywhere, right? The kasha, kasha is in every supermarket, okay. in, at least in the New York metro area. <laughs> okay. Wolf's is the brand that um, that most supermarkets carry. Since I live in Brooklyn, where there are a lot of kasha eaters, I can buy other brands, but. Um, Wolf's is an excellent brand, and it comes in whole kasha. It's groats. By the way, kasha is buckwheat groats. What it is is the uh, the seed of buckwheat, which is sort of a kind of grass to oversimplify. It's not related to wheat at all, and it is gluten-free. It's a gluten-free grain. So you can buy kasha in whole groats. Uh, medium groats, fine groats. I think there's also a coarse cut groats. I happen to like the coarser rather than the finer. What I made the other day was with with the finer because it's what I had in the house and I want to actually use it up. So um, you 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 stir in a beaten egg and put it over medium medium high flame and stir it stir it. it only takes a couple minutes until. The, the, the kasha is no longer clumped together from the egg, but separate now. And then you add your hot liquid. In my case, I added, um, what did I have? Oh, I, had, I happened to have beef broth. So I added, uh, for one cup of kasha, you need four cups of liquid, of broth. And I put that in, salt, cover the, uh, although my beef broth was well salted, so I didn't add salt, but so you've got to be careful there. And then you cover the pot, put it over medium heat, and 10 minutes, it's all, the, the, the liquid has been absorbed, the kosh is all fluffed up, and then with a fork, fluff it all up um, and stir in, you know, for a cup of kasha, I used a pound of onions. Wow. Sliced and fried. 
Uh, and I like to fry then? the onions until they're really dark. Okay, that's the way I make onions, you know, too. What do you fry them in? It's such a Jewish taste, i got to say. Yeah, like overdone everything. Yeah, well, <laughs> not overdone everything. I'm sorry I don't go for that. But, I know. But definitely well-caramelized onions, to use <laughs> and current did, lingo. what do you cook them in? Well, for for, for kasha varnish, it's usually just vegetable oil. Right, a, a neutral oil. A neutral oil, right. I happen to have some schmaltz in the refrigerator. I was That's tempted to do that. chicken fat. But I didn't. Yeah, chicken fat. So anyway, um, yeah, that's it. And then you stir in uh, your your fried onions, and you and for that I used. Uh, let's see, you know what I I do weigh my pasta these days because I don't want to overeat pasta, and you 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 think you actually want more than you need. So I think we were three people that day, so I measured out. Uh, six ounces of pasta, two ounces each person boiled it up until it was tender. I did not use all that kasha for the um, for that amount of, 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 of bow ties. I had leftover kasha, and I must say it reheats extremely well. You either put it in a, a covered di- dish in the oven, like if you're making something else in the oven, or you can put it in the microwave. It microwaves very well. Right. Is it a main course, or do you? Well, Kasha Barnishkis was lunch for us, for uh-huh. me, for Bob, me, and uh, my next door neighbor. Okay, lucky next door neighbor. Well, Ellen is a doll. Uh-huh. Are you? You know, we had to say that we're, we're neighbors now for twenty-four oh, years, John. I've been here twenty-four years. Hard to believe. I remember the Tudor Place apartment in Tudor City, right? Tudor City. With a, uh, yeah, yeah. I know. Anyway, that was time a long goes time by. Ago. It does. So do you make meat at all? Yeah, I do. Let me say this, though. Both Bob and I have had some dental issues lately. So, um, and he's a baby when he gets sick. Uh-huh. I'm not so bad. Um, you know, all men, I think, uh, yeah, that, fall into two categories. Right. They're either hypochondriacs or deniers. Uh-huh. I'm sort of in the middle, I got to say, but he's he's big on being hypochondriac. He enjoys it. So um, anyway, we had to eat soft for so. a few weeks. I did, I did too because I was having a dental problem too. Uh-huh. So we haven't eaten much meat lately, but I you know I still love a great steak. And Do I you still make love... it home, or you say well, out. you know I don't go out too much these days. But that's the one thing I would and would like to go out for a for steak. Um, we have some great steakhouses in Brooklyn, and there's a new one I'm eager to get to called, I haven't been there, but it's, I think it's called Gus's Grill, uh, something like that. Where? In but Brooklyn Heights? No, no, it's, uh, I guess they call that Carroll Gardens. Uh-huh. No, but the place that I swear by is not Peter Luger, by the way, but it's not so far from Peter Luger. It's called, um, I want to say De Stefano. God, my memory, Joan, is just don't, not what it no, used to be. No, we need it. <laughs> so don't give it away yet. It will come back. Have you? Yeah, been... no, it'll 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 come back in a in a minute. But the thing is, um, there are there are two with similar names that I keep getting confused. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Stefano's is on. No, this is the other one. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, De Stefano. Anyway, the reason there are several reasons that I love De Stefano. First, of course, the meat's incredible. And not just steak, not just beef, but um, they have an 
unbelievable pork chop, too. So um, that's one. Two, they could not be nicer. That <laughs> they, makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. Um, I have a friend, can, must be, remain unnamed, who's very hard of hearing. And his doctor told him that when he goes to a, re- a, a restaurant, especially a noisy restaurant, he should try to sit in a corner with his back to a wall right by him, whatever. So I call the restaurant and I say, I know, because I know the layout of the room. I said, I know the blah, blah, and we have that table. Absolutely. So uh, I'm going to put your name on it. And then I had a call back for some other reason, and they were still very nice. And so when I got there, I said, you know, where is, I think her name was Claudia. Where's Claudia? I want to thank her for being so nice. And I went up to Claudia, and she said, you just got me on a good day. (laughs) You know, it was that kind of (laughs) friendly answer. Um, Anyway, and then the tables are widely spaced. There is no music on the sound system. You can, you can talk to your friends. Unbelievable. Right? Yes. And also, they're in a corner of Williamsburg, or maybe you want to call it Bushwick. I'll tell you a cute story about that. That, that Whether you can actually park. So I have, you know, I just take the car. 10, 15-minute drive. So the thing is, the first time I went, um, the friendly waiter was chatting with us. And it came out that he lived in the neighborhood. It was a great job for him. He could walk to work, blah, blah. And he was he was obviously a hipster. Um, and I said to him, well, uh, what do you call, what do you, you know, where do you live? He says, oh, I live in, it's, and they now call it Bushwick. But when I moved here, it was East Williamsburg. Oh, <laughs> no, it was, originally it was Bushwick, but now they're calling it East Williamsburg. Yeah, of course. Perfect, right? It's, they well, added you get chic. better rent, I guess, in yeah, East Williamsburg. You've got a very chic neighborhood. Yeah, well, I, mean, that, I don't live there, but um, I do live in a nice neighborhood, but uh-huh. it's not anywhere near there. Joan, I have to give you a Brooklyn tour. I uh, know. You, you, it's about time you familiarized yourself. Well, don't forget my husband was I know, brought but... up on Crown Street, so we used to go back, but we called Persistence of Memory Tours. Well, you know. But it's that not is, the same. That is, no, Crown Street is beautiful. Um, it's, 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 that, that, that's, that is near me. That's just the other side of Flappish Avenue. Yeah. Um, and you know, I always say, I always lived, I I have been saying, I, I've always lived, except for my years in Manhattan, I always lived within 10 blocks of Flappish Avenue. And now I can see it from my bedroom window. So it's just down the avenue. By the way, speaking of just down the avenue, there is a restaurant. I, there are a few restaurants that I swear by. Which um, ones? But that well, there's an Azerbaijani restaurant on Coney Island Avenue, uh, and Avenue P, where I've been going for you know, well pre-COVID anyway. So 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 a number of years now. Um, great food, um, great prices. Uh, we usually go for lunch, but. On the weekends, it's crowded with a lot of Russians and Ukrainians. Yeah, what kind of menu? Well, if you like meat, it's a good place to go. The Azerbaijani make incredible grilled meat. But the, even chicken, the chicken, I mean, I swear by the chicken there. I never order chicken in a yes. restaurant usually because I make my own chicken. So, But there, we eat chicken. Um, uh, Lulia kebab, which are the little ground meat kebabs, they're sensational there. 
and they come wrapped in a very, very thin flatbread. So you can eat it with your hand mm, in like this flatbread. They have a salad, a sweet and sour eggplant salad with, topped with feta cheese and nuts, walnuts. Wonderful. Um, they There are a few Russian things. They make great soups. Um, in fact, one of my friends usually goes and goes home with the cream of mushroom soups because that reheats very well. They make borscht. Uh, they make a, an Azerbaijani soup with uh, lamb ribs in it. Oh, that sounds good. Um, they make – oh, well, I am always looking for somebody to eat organ meats with because and, – and ends up almost nobody I know eats organ Even meats. Even liver, like calves liver? Well, I, the, the liver I eat at a Turkish restaurant. You know, they make the little cubes of liver. Uh-huh. I love and it, that. And my favorite – a, a, a Turkish restaurant is right across the street from, by the way, the Azerbaijani place is called Village Cafe, and they have a tiny parking lot. But recently, they decided to rent out some of the spaces in the parking lot. So there are, is often no parking in the parking lot <laughs> in front of the restaurant. However, because I'm a regular there, they let me park and block in the people who are renting spaces. It's just that I have to go out and move the car. If but that's comes. annoying. But move it that. sounds It's good. not annoying to me. It's better than having to search yeah, for a parking space. Exactly. Um, anyway, and they have a, and the same guy who owns the restaurant owns a liquor store, which is also on the parking lot. And you can BYOB there. Oh, so anyway, okay. for a lot of reasons. So they have a dish called Bizzy Bizzy, which is um, several different organ meats, including testicles, gizzards, liver. I hate to tell you. Whatever. All, all sautéed together with potatoes and onions. Well, I like the sautéing with potatoes and onions. <laughs> we could do without some of the... Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, that's the problem. I never can find... And it's too much for me to order for myself. So I have, I'm always looking for somebody to go there with me. But the new place, which is closer, we may actually go there today for lunch, um, even though I made this soup. Um, there's a, 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 um, Pete Wells reviewed this in the Times uh, last week. What's it? What was it called? And, uh, it's called Dunya, D-U-N-Y-A, and it's an uh, uh, Afghani restaurant. It's the only Afghani restaurant in Brooklyn. And Bob and I used to go to an Afghani restaurant on St. Mark's Place in the city in Manhattan. Uh, and we actually became friendly with the owner. They closed a long time ago. And we, since then, we, we've been craving oshak, which are these Afghani dumplings, steamed dumplings, filled with scallions and leek. Wow. And then dressed with a, a, a yogurt sauce. And, a, and a, if you like, a drizzle of meat gravy. It sounds so. You many years ago, you and I had Afghani dumplings when we were doing for a short well, time our Saturday show. Well, there you go. Maybe it was from then. It was called Cafe Kabul. It was so good. It was so good. So this is the first. I mean, by the way, years later, um, our Turkish restaurant, the owner. <laughs> so it's called Taji's Beiti. The this really, really good Turkish restaurant on Coney Island Avenue. Um, the owner, Taji, he's dead several years now. Um, his son, Ersan, runs that restaurant. But then all of a sudden, and, and Taji got lung cancer, went back to Turkey, got, you know, was remission, didn't stop smoking anyway, but went to, uh, he pops up on Metropolitan Avenue in Queens. 
So I said, what are you doing here? He says, well, I opened the other restaurant for the eldest son of my first wife, and I'm opening this one for the eldest son of my second wife. Ah, that's funny. So <laughs> so he was in there for a while cooking and and, and, and teaching whoever is cooking there now uh, what, how to do it all. So one day we, he said, my wife is Afghani. I said, oh, maybe, does she make Oshak? Oh, yeah. He'll, she'll make you an Afghani meal one night. And so one day we went out to Queens and she cooked for us. It was, was wonderful. Was it good? No, it was wonderful. Mm. A memorable night, too. So anyway, this place is terrific, has a very hospitable owner, um, is very nice. Dunya. It's in, it's on a totally nondescript block of Coney Island Avenue. Uh, I had a, a laugh when Pete Wells said, "Oh, it's it's a uh, they have this strip of Coney Island Avenue is mainly uh, car you know body shops and right. whatever." Well, my father was an auto mechanic, and when I was a kid, we had to go to Coney Island Avenue all the time because that's where all the parts houses were. Mm-hmm. You know where they sold. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Everything. So uh, and now there are still a remnant of all those auto service places, um, and but and and by the way, good gas prices. <laughs> yeah, well, better than we have. By the way, who is the who's butcher? we? You mean the, the Hamptons? No, New York. Well, too. I don't know. What I don't know what the price of gas is in New York, but here it was down to three thirty nine the other day. Well, it's funny that we consider that a bargain. Well, it's okay. It is. It's okay. Let me say, I, let's let's segue to food prices, which is more my ballywick, because I know nothing about gas prices except how much they are. But we have a new supermarket in the neighborhood, brand new, just opened a week ago. What's it called? Well, it's actually a division of Key Food, uh-huh. but it's called uh, Food Universe Marketplace. And? Which I consider a really stupid name. So Bob and I have decided we're just going to call it Key Food. Because if you go to the website of food, whatever I just said, Food Universe Marketplace, you end up at Key Food. And and, Key Food has a house brand called Urban Meadow. That's the key. If you go to a supermarket, even if it's not called Key Food, and they have Urban Meadow products, which, by the way, are mostly uh, one things I've tasted have been very good. Um, That's the Key Food house brand. Anyway, I go into the supermarket and, you know, the prices are high. And my neighbor next door, she says, oh, well, I'm not going to shop there. The prices are too high. Here's the deal. Those are the new prices. It's just that the older supermarkets have stock. It still has the old prices on it. This is just open. So everything is the current price. And the current price is high. Very high. Anyone who's shopped for turkeys are going to be in I know, but I must say... I, I, don't, I am a very fortunate man, and I don't have to really think about what I'm spending on food. Um, but still, I, I, I'm very cognizant of, of food of what's prices, gone on. Yeah. and I'm a good shopper. So I go to this new, what my neighbor thinks is expensive supermarket that isn't, and I find they have those big bags of, of uh, mandarins, which I love. I just bought one. How would that. you pay? I, you know what? I don't remember. Yeah, you probably aren't conscious of it either. I paid two ninety nine, which I know is very cheap. Very. Yeah, and then yeah, you got to be a good shopper. <laughs> the other thing is like meat. I I couldn't believe that their meat was as well priced as it is. Now all of a sudden, beef is looking not, not so bad. Yeah. 
And anyway. it, they have what prime or choice? I suddenly it's not. Me. Listen, it's not my first go to for uh, a meat. good steak. But here's uh, but I did find. Listen, we have this very snobby butcher uh, opened in Prospect Heights. It's only a few blocks from me, and they they charge three dollars a pound for chicken backs, which I use to make broth. Uh huh. Joan, I can't. I get insecure if I don't have broth in the freezer. I know how you feel. I do too. So, and all some, and I ran out of broth sometime in early August. So, when, when it was finally cool enough to have a pot oh, going for yeah. six hours. Anyway, um, so they charge three dollars a pound. My butcher, who I buy them from all the time, a real butcher, he charges a dollar fifty a pound, and wow. they're frozen because he 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 bones out a lot of chickens. Uh-huh. And I, for broth, it's okay for them to, you know. No, the, it yeah. good. The new supermarket's 99 cents a pound. You're kidding. That's no, a bar. No, so I bought 10, I bought yeah. 10 pounds, mm-hmm. and I now have enormous uh, quantity of broth, a really good broth, i got to say, which I use to make my soup for lunch today if we eat it or not. We'll when see. you make your own chicken stock, which I do too, it all started when my husband would insist on poaching chicken for the dog. And I remember this. Remember? And I would have more chicken stock than any living person because <laughs> he insisted the dog eat three meals a day. <laughs> well, of course. He absolutely ruined the dog because she's not eating anything else but organic chicken. At one point, he said he'd only buy kosher chicken for the dog because no. it was fresh. He was, with that dog, you know, he went crazy with the dog. Anyway. Yeah, when but why he, kosher? He... When you make your own chicken stock, yeah, you put all the chicken backs. Do you do vegetables in it too? Yes, like carrots. I, I, what I do is I throw it all in a pot with plenty of water to cover. You can always cook it down later. And what vegetables? And then, well, no, I don't do that yet. I bring it to a boil first and skim it for usually a good fifteen minutes of skimming. All right, that's the chicken backs. And then I add carrot, onion, celery. That's it. I don't add greens, no herbs, because uh-huh. it turns the, the broth greenish. Um, if you want that, you can add it at the very end. Um, I don't put in parsnips. I'm not making Jewish broth. I, you know, I want it to be very Strong generic broth bread. so I can do anything I want with it. So, I, should, you know, for the 10 pounds of, of uh, backs, uh, I put in um, uh, it was a substantial... Uh, onion. It could have been a you know, seven or eight ounce onion. It was uh-huh. a nice size onion, which I quartered and threw in the pot. And two nice size carrots, which I uh, peeled and quartered and threw in the pot. Um, and then celery. I had really nice celery, I got to say, too. So I use at least two ribs outside celery, uh-huh. outside ribs of celery in the pot. And that was it. And peppercorns, uh, I would say about a teaspoon of peppercorns and, it's and a few cloves. Mm, sounds really good That's to it, me. salt. I love the way it sounds, and I love talking and the way, to you. And then you. I cooked it for six hours, Joan. Oh, my gosh. Which, yeah, I put it up at six. Low? And I, pardon me? At a low heat? Yes, yeah, so, yeah, perking away. I have uh-huh. a stock pot. So at one point, sort of like after three or four hours, I had to top it off with some more water, but my pot doesn't really encourage evaporation. So I could do it six hours and not even look at it. Right, that sounds great. And I, before I went to sleep, I turned it off, left it on the stove to cool, got up in the morning, 
strained out all the solids, which I do with a strainer and a, I have a, a napkin, an old linen napkin I've been through. using for years to do this with. And, and that's it. And then I put it in the fridge. And then once it's chilled, I skim off the fat. Sounds and, good. And then, by the way, and my brought this this, you know, they sell this bone broth, which I think is uh, a, in my neighborhood we have a bone store. Let me just say, bone broth is bullshit. Um, I don't know if I could say that on your station, but, but you it is. did. But <laughs> I did. Well, you know, bigger people than me have said it. Anyway, point is, it, all that is is cooked long enough so that the bones give off their collagen. And the broth itself should gel. And my, my I had a hard gel on this broth. Mm. Cooked six hours. Wow. Sounds yeah. good. No one All does right, it better. Dear. Arthur, we'll talk again. Arthur Schwartz. I miss yeah, well, you, and I love hearing you talk and all about well, your food. Well, you know, if I don't do anything, at least I cook. I know, you cook, and he. No one does it better. Thank well, you, Arthur. Said love to Bob. Practice makes perfect. Yep. Have a great week, Joan. You too, honey. I'm Joan Hamburg. You're listening to WABC and more to come. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone. And I want to share a play that I saw recently. And one of the most well, can we use the word heartbreaking, emotional, real, something special on Broadway, the new Tom Stoppard play. And it's called Leopoldstadt. And I learned that is was the name of a Jewish quarter in Vienna where this play took place. And you meet in the beginning of the play, which I think is 1899, Aaron Neal, who plays Ernst, who is a Christian, married to Wilma. And Aaron, I want to make sure I pronounce her, her name right. So you do. Her last you name. do. Thank you. Yeah, you've got that perfectly right. In fact, uh, you've got uh, pronunciations that it took us uh, three weeks in rehearsals to, to align on. So your instincts are very good. <laughs> so... I'm I'm really glad. But tell me a little bit about this play. We walked out of the play so moved that you know how usually you're yakking or talking when you're out right. play, you're running, grabbing a cab. We couldn't do that. We yeah. felt we had to go and sit down somewhere again, having just gotten up. Mm-hmm. And we had to digest the impact especially at this time in our own history. It's like Stoppard, for his own emotional well-being, I'm sure the play was incredibly important to him in many different ways. Mm. But for everyone in an audience with what we're going through in this country, the diversity, the sometimes turning our eyes away from the reality of what's happening. So I'm curious as an actor and your character too, and we follow you and your family through unbelievably good times, a total assimilation for Mm -hmm. this population to extraordinarily difficult, horrendous times 
that yes. are part of history. So tell me where this happened to you when you were called for the part or your agent or something. How did it happen? Well, in my personal journey to it, through it is, uh, is interesting because I saw it announced and I thought, well, Tom Stoppard play, Leopold Staff, um, it's about uh, the experience of being a Jew in Vienna. Well, I'll, I'll, I'd love to go and see that. I'll obviously never be in it because I'm, you know, I'm not Jewish and uh, I'm a person of colour. And then the call came to audition. I was a little bit bewildered. And, of course, Tom being Tom, he has approached this, incredible story with as many perspectives on the stage as possible and one of them is a character who is a protestant doctor who is a friend of freud's because uh, all of these people are sort of bubbling around in the media of viennese society and he marries into the family he marries in <clears throat> to one of the two families we focus on and so the first scene you open on is this sort of uh, mixture of religious and cultural influences it's a family primarily of jews one of them has converted to christianity so they have a christmas tree um there's a doctor who's married in and it strikes me that it's very typically tom to include almost every perspective he possibly can on an issue through the very many characters on stage so for me it was a, uh, it was um it was kind of a, a an unexpected joy to be cast in it because I thought the play was magnificent when I read it and um, that it has a space for me who is not a Jew is um, kind of personally thrilling. And I think Tom, to be fair, is making the point that the story of the Jews in the 20th century is humanity's story, not just the Jews' story. And the idea that the, the unspeakable tragedy of the Holocaust was something for Jews to talk about is to me obscene. I mean, it seems like the architects of that tragedy were all Gentiles, and therefore it is our reckoning and our shame. Um, I feel anyway. Right. And to see this family at the end of 1899, <clears throat> and we open, we, there's this incredible Christmas tree in the midst of this Jewish family. In fact, <laughs> life must be so confusing to these little Jewish children that one of the uh, children in the beginning of the play actually puts like the Star of David or a Jewish symbol on the top of the I tree. Know. And quite, you, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead. I was no. just say it's quite gloriously funny. And, um, and we, we, we negotiate that every night where the audience sit down to watch what they feel, what they have been told is you know, in air quotes, Tom Stoppard's Holocaust play. So they sit down with a very sort of serious uh, uh, expectation and they open on exactly on the scene as you described, this sort of crazy mixed family Christmas that would be familiar to so many of us who you know, been to different, had different cultural and religious influences. And the poor children are incredibly confused. And like you say, one of them puts a star of David on the top of the Christmas tree. And you can feel the audience from the stage. You can feel the audience, uh, their relief at their permission to laugh, that this journey is going to be funny and, and full of life and, um, and, uh, and, and enjoyable, that the family are going to be enjoyable to watch. I, and I'm always moved by the fact that we often meet these people at the end. You know, in, in our culture and in our literature, we see mm -hmm. people in 
with shaved heads and striped pyjamas. And it seems to me to rob them of an essence of their humanity. Tom is determined to show you the life before so as you can acutely feel the loss. So you are going to spend 20 minutes in this sort of riotous, witty, crazy, funny family Christmas um, to start with, which I think is a quite a wonderful trick on his part. Right, and you have love interests, and right. as right, you ha- you have it all. You yes. have gorgeous food, and the, the you look at this, and how could anything happen to this incredible family so right. assimilated yes. into society of Vienna? Nothing is going to happen to them, but history doesn't lie. Well, that I think is one of the most powerful messages of the play: is that you may have thought that the Jews were always under a degree of persecution that simply intensified to a horrific level with um, with the Holocaust. But you know, one of Tom's discoveries, or at least it, you know, one of his uh, things, the facts that he wants to present, is just how wildly integrated and successful the Jewish community in Vienna were. And the character of Hermann Mertz is very, he's very keen to articulate this, this point. You know, we're only one in 10, but, uh, but we're the doctors and the educators and the lawyers. What does he say? Is that lovely line? He said, uh, my father, my grandfather wore a top, a, a kaftan. My father wore a top hat to the opera and I have the singers to dinner. You know, we write the music. We we pay for the for the for the tuition for the. It, it's so it's so shocking to see how unexpected anything is um, in 1899. And when they're discussing Theodor Herzl's Judenstadt and the possibility of the Jewish state, Hermann's argument is: Why on earth would we want to leave Vienna when we've got it so good? And the question is sort of brutally, brutally and tragically answered over the next two hours. Right. And it makes you think, even if you are one of the few who are unaware of what's going on, right. that this happened and this is happening and it can happen during right. these times. You know, um, I was in Germany with some friends not that long ago. And there were, at that particular time, there were uprisings and all kinds of things going on. And we all looked, we said, how, how could that possibly be again? Right. You know, but, right. but our world is very complicated. And it is, which is why this play is so important, not only for the actors, as you point out, how this has touched you and moved you in so many ways, mm-hmm. but for Tom Stoppard, who... Yeah. also had to come to deal with his Jewishness and the fate of his family. His grandparents all were killed in the concentration yes. camps. And Tom, as it were, makes an appearance in the play. I won't spoil it for people who haven't seen it. But this is very much <clears throat> sparked by a journey that he undertook into his own past. And, and his, uh, his mother, um, Marta, who took the name Bobby after she married uh, an English um, major and, and, and escaped to England, um, really was keen to hide her Jewish heritage because she thought it was going to happen again. She thought there'd be pogroms in the north of England. And for Tom to do the archaeology 
and by happy accident, really, by visiting of a European relative, he asked him, you know, how, how Jewish were we? And, and Sarka, his relative, said, well, what do you mean? We were Jewish. Right. And there is a there's a character in the play who has managed to evade um, a reckoning with his Jewish past, which is who is almost a cipher for Tom. Um, and it's it, and he's towards the end of the play brought uh, brought to come to terms with what he's blocked out. This rather beautiful line Tom was once asked. Um, you know, what, what's the key line of the play? And you'd expect him to prevaricate and, uh-huh. and talk around it. And he said straight away, oh, no, I know what it is. I know what it is. He said that the whole reason I wrote the play was this life, you know, um, no one is born eight years old. Leonard Chamberlain's life, his Leo Rosenbaum's life continued. But you walk as if you cast no shadow behind you, as if you have no history. And I think that's Tom's reckoning with himself. He always used right. to talk about having a charmed life. And and maybe there is in the play a, a sense of guilt or a sense of atonement um, that he has left it so long to, to reckon with his past. And I think that's what makes it very moving. It's a very vulnerable um, and searching examination of the role of the past in the self. And, you know, he's he's probably critical of himself for leaving it so long. You can feel it in the play. Right. With, without question. And... We, as we follow him and follow you, and I'm just curious, the play, I have friends who live in London, and this was a big deal. Mm. And were you surprised by, were you, you were in the London edition? I've been, yes, I've been in it. I've been lucky enough to be in it since the beginning, so pre-pandemic. And then we were closed down during the pandemic, then in the revival, then revival of that production post-pandemic and here. So so I've been in every performance, which is a, a, a kind of dizzying privilege, really, to, to consider. But in answer to your question, I, the strange thing is you, it's, it's stop hard. And I, I keep asking myself the question, who is the, the equivalent playwright whose new play would be met with such anticipation? Um, and I find it hard to come up with an answer, if I'm honest. Maybe Tony Kushner. Um, I, I, there are... He just strands... He stands so tall over the theatrical landscape that, in a way, I, I, I wasn't surprised because, you know, it, it flabbergasted me when I read it. And Tom has such a pedigree. And I, I think that the nature of it and watching it dawn on audiences, just how rawly moving it was, because Tom is often known for his witticisms and his flights of fancy, although I think all his plays are desperately moving. But, um, but you know, you expect a workout of the mind. I don't think people expected quite as big a workout of the heart as we, you know, as we had. And, and that response that you <clears throat> articulated, which is, you know, we, we, we all as company members have known this of our guests who've come to see it, which is they're all very buzzy about having a talk afterwards and maybe going for dinner and they come out rather flabbergasted and shell-shocked and often in right. tears and, and you know, unable to speak, really, which, um, which I'm very grateful for because there would be nothing more obscene than addressing that subject and for it not to hit its mark. And did you know when this started, Aaron, that this, when you first read it and saw it, 
that this was in many ways about Tom's history. And even though he says, it's not my family, but it was mm. a family that could have been his family. Well, it's, it's, it's very Tom, isn't it? It's so impish that he writes himself quite sort of obviously and clearly, or at least he says there are aspects that that character shares with him with himself, but that he writes his family so wildly differently from his own family. And I think, I think Tom being an intensely private person, he, he didn't want the play to be about, you know, he didn't want the play to be gossip, which essentially would be, let's see what Tom thinks of his aunts and uncles. So I think to review, to remove almost any confusion, he creates this rather glorious family. And of course, Tom is from Zlin in uh, Czechoslovakia and this family is in Vienna. So I think there are other things, as always with Tom, there are other things he wants to explore. He's just very interested in that moment in Viennese history in 1900 where, where um, Schnitzler and Mahler and Freud and Klimt were all hanging around this sort of <clears throat> incredible cultural moment. Um, and there are so many threads referencing those people in fact, you know, the first image of the play, you can see copies of the interpretation of dreams and copies of Judenstadt and copies of Schnitzler's La Ronde um, being read by this erudite family. So I, Tom is just unable and unwilling to cover more than 30 subjects in one play, I think. And that's what makes it quite right. baffling. Um, but yes, what, what I think the glorious trick of it was, and I was saying this to somebody as we were warming in the company, as we were warming up, is that they feel like real people. They feel like real people to whom this happened. And of course, they're fictitious characters that Tom has made up and they go to, they go to a death that many horrifically went to, but they weren't real. But they feel so real. By the end of it, you feel like you've witnessed a documentary about a family, family almost. Um, and again, I think that's a testament to Tom's skill at weaving a, a tapestry of a believable family together. Right. And uh, to the audience, that family is Tom's family, you right. know, even though he says yeah. it isn't. But if we're yeah. watching it, the reality of those performances, mm. including yours, Aaron, is that they're real. Nothing can take right. away that reality. We may want to deny it because it's too <clears throat> painful and horrible, but mm. it happened and it's still happening in places all over the world. And I'm sure as an actor, it's incredibly mm. painful too. And it probably occupies a lot of conversation here in America. Do you sense yeah. what's going on here? Um, the diversion, the derision, the differences between various groups and various peoples and the anger that seems to be everywhere, right? It's impossible to ignore it. And there seems to be, uh, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's fascinating. There seems to be a vicious othering of people from outside this country. It's almost um, terrifying, the level of, scapegoating that's happening there seems to be complex problems in this country that are affecting people terribly and under huge economic and social pressure and yet there seems to be one voice coming out of the political spectrum 
that is viciously attacking a powerless minority uh, and blaming them for everything. Um, and that is, that's just an, un, an uncanny pow- parallel to what was happening. And I think the most terrifying part of the play is that you join the characters <clears throat> because the play goes through time periods and without wanting to give anything away, you join the characters on the day of Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass right. in 1938. And uh, on that very day, the day when you know, almost all Jewish businesses were smashed and looted, there's a character in that room saying, oh, you don't understand, we're used to this, it'll pass and something else will take its place. And, um, you know, the sense of how quickly we accept the, the vicious rhetoric of essentially fascist demagogues and how quickly we just say, well, this is what they say to whip up their base, they don't really mean it. It, these are just uncannily like the things that were said in 1930s Germany, and uh, terrifyingly so, because one wants to believe that can never happen again, and one looks for reasons why it could never happen again. And yet, I, I would say, as a you know, whilst doing this play three and a half years, I have seen things happen that I thought would never happen again in the in in the world, and so where this is all leading is is such a pertinent question. You know, just the rise of vicious and virulent anti-Semitism um, with no sense of where that has led historically is, is incredibly sobering. Very, very. That's why the time for this play has never been more important. And I, I think, I right? Agree, yes. Yeah, I agree. And you know what I would add is that I'm almost keen to tell people that Tom is just, he's, he's, this is not a somber, dark documentary where you are bludgeoned over the head with a horror that you know about already. That would be just an insult to Tom's ability. It has, I mean, I'm amazed that Tom has managed to put such beautiful, warm laughs into the play that don't feel in any way jarring, but also feel utterly necessary because, um, you know, if you want to see the story, if you want to feel the snuffing out of life, then you must feel the life as deeply, as strongly as possible. And like you said, people fall in love and people laugh. And really the, the first half of the play takes place in almost a completely different world. There is this stuff looming, but it's, funny and light and loving and warm and, and and clasps you into the bosom of the family. Sorry, yes. Well, it's quite incredible. Have you noticed the audiences are similar here and in England, or do you sense a difference in the reaction to the There play? is a difference, and I, and I will say this because probably no one in England will hear this, but they're just smarter here. <laughs> I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a smart play, and... Um, <laughs> And there are laughs that we have thought always were, you know, if you know the play well, uh, um, there are laughs that you get because Tom is being incredibly witty and that you're making allusions to things scenes previously. And the British audience weren't as vocal, whereas the American audience, they just feel sharper, um, more open, more willing to laugh. There's that wonderful, you know, the expression of emotion, uh, in my observation as an expat here, comes a lot easier to Americans and New Yorkers than it does to us repressed Brits. 
and hearing both the laughter and a sort of wall of grief and sniffles at the very end of the play. And uh, the other night, a woman, you know, just uh, openly sobbing and crying, not in a demonstrative way, but just overtaken by the play. Yes. It's so lovely to get such a such a vocal reaction and i hope nobody who watches british theater listens to this because they'll feel insulted but um, it has been my experience <laughs> well they're a little more repressed but we'll excuse yeah, them we'll excuse yeah. them because they're great when it comes to theater and takes chances on everything you know so right. it's special and we appreciate it all and thank you Aaron, Aaron Neal, a wonderful performance and an amazing play. And we've all been pronouncing the name of this play wrong. Yes, I think it's been said as, I mean, Tom's such a trickster because, you know, it's Leopoldstadt is the, is the district. But of course, the play isn't even set there. It's the place that they come from and they go to. Um, right. The play happens um, in their brief journey out of Leopoldstadt, if you like, uh, into the center of the heart of Vienna. But it is as much a state of mind as a play. It's the um, it, it, it's the sort of poor Jewish quarter of Vienna that they emerged from and tragically went back to. In the end, I thank you so much. Congratulations! Thank and you we very look much, Joan. It's a it's a pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again. I hope I'm Joan Hamburg, right. and you're listening to WABC. More to come. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. A lot of people are resisting getting a flu vaccine or a COVID booster. I'm always amazed by how many people don't want to deal with it. You hear all kinds of stuff. Oh, I heard there are bad side effects from the COVID booster. I don't want to get the flu and the flu vaccine. The truth is, people are being urged to get the flu vaccine. It was a big story in the Times the other day, and all the leading scientists and medical people were warning of what they called a twindemic. Did you guys see it? They were saying COVID-19 is still very prevalent, and you've got to really try to take care of yourself. The flu vaccines, according to the authorities and the scientists, are quick, they're safe, they're available, and they're not going to cost you anything. In fact, if you live in New York, you're a New Yorker, you can call 888-NYC, the number 4-NYC, and make an appointment. Or I went into my CVS and... I didn't even need an appointment, but you got to check so that you don't waste your time. All these things are in the air, and New Yorkers and wherever you live should get vaccinated against the flu. We don't know if we're going to have what they call a twindemic, but it's getting colder, and this is when it all happens, and the flu is contagious. And it is very serious. And the vaccines are the best defense against illness. In fact, when I read the Times piece, it said the health department has categorized flu activity as widespread. And the Center for Disease Control 
recommends everyone over the age of six months get vaccinated against the flu, especially if you're a high-risk person. So it's here already. And the flu vaccine has been updated since last year. And someone asked, is it possible to become sick with the flu and COVID? Yes, but the vaccines will prevent getting a really serious illness or a serious risk, especially from a flu infection. So it's something to know about. And they'll reduce flu-associated hospitalizations. If you know someone who's pregnant and they're asking about flu vaccination, it helps prevent pregnant people from flu during and after the pregnancy, and it may protect the people around you. So check it out. There are appointments, and a lot of the drugstores are doing it without. So this is something you should not take lightly. I'm Joan Hamburg, and we have much more ahead.